start with our champ. <clears throat> in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautified our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. You practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude. Wang Chenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, tree meadows are stainless light at your feet, I pray. Grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Hey, good evening and welcome. Hope you're well, everyone. Two weeks and counting, huh? So, it's helpful to, to contextualize a little bit our uh, continuing journey through these different sets of views. By trying to have a larger picture of uh, what is it that these folks are trying to grapple with as opposed to just the specifics of the little details. And uh, we know that the overall framework is uh, the quest for enlightenment. And uh, in Buddhism, it's generally understood that enlightenment... <coughs> Sorry, <laughs> watching Chris... <laughs> Wow. He's got vertigo. Yeah, that gave me. <laughs> Flying around there. Yeah, I'm in my shop. I'm trying to get this phone to stay <laughs> up, and then it flipped upside down. 
Good thing you have a helmet on. Good thing, yeah. I, I was in one session yesterday where there was a person who was literally upside down the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, right there, stay. Let's see. So, okay. enlightenment in, in Buddhism is generally considered to be um, the uh, accomplished by eliminating what are called the obstructions to enlightenment. And the obstructions to enlightenment are um, ignorance about what the true nature of reality is, and um, karmic. Uh, momentum that arises out of that ignorance, out of that uh, un un inability to know the true nature of reality. In the form of emotionality and um, just general habitual patterns. And uh, so sometimes it feels like they're getting a little bit lost in the weeds with these uh, things, but that is the general framework. So trying to figure out what is the, the true nature of reality from the point of view of the idea that if you understand the true nature of reality, it will liberate you. They are, are struggling with that with trying to understand uh, what what's real, what's not real, and uh, how things happen. How, uh, how, um, so how things happen in general, and then how um, uh, morally tainted uh, propensities get collected and transmitted from one moment or lifetime to the next. And uh, it also entails how does perception happen? How, is perception, um, in, in what way is perception helping or uh, further obscuring our um, understanding of the true nature of reality? So what's real? How do things come about? How do things happen? Production, in particular, uh, cause and effect in the world of uh, morally or ethically taint, uh, uh, tainted, uh, tainted is always negative, but it could be positive, uh, morally or ethically colored. Um, and uh, how is perception impacting our understanding of what's real? And then how do we achieve liberation? How do we uh, eliminate, that's the big one, how do we eliminate those obscurations, the two obscurations of knowledge or understanding and the resulting uh, habitual patterns? The general scheme for liberation is that we um, we overcome the obstructions to correct understanding of the nature of reality through 
insight. And that we overcome the obstructions of uh, emotionality and karma by habituating ourselves to the true nature of reality, training. And one of the interesting things about that is that, um, or, or both of these is that they're stages of uh, realization by insight. And similarly, there's stages in the uh, reconditioning of our mental being. And they sort of weave, interweave between each other so that as you achieve a higher understanding of the way things are, your mental, your uh, karmic continuum doesn't immediately shift. Your karmic continuum still has its own momentum and it takes a, a further while to... Uh, change that karmic momentum. So I'm talking in sort of broad strokes in the hope that it makes sense. Uh, so let's take a look. Let's now dive in. So we went through uh, the Vibhashika view of the nature of reality, which is very sort of basic. Um, uh, Buddhist view of mind and matter. And um, had some peculiarities which the Sautrantic approach addressed. So we're in the Sautrantic approach and we were going to go through the refutation of the Sautrantic approach. Uh, by uh, Longchenpa to review briefly the Sautrantika approach on the bottom of 74. He says the Sautrantikas generally agree with the Vaibhashikas with the exception of a few things. Um, one is this idea of uh, this odd notion of what is uh, the form of a uh, of a vow. How to classify that, which is not really that relevant. And then the second part of the paragraph on top of 75, it's um, it's two things. One is uh, a quick description of the way perception happens which he'll, he'll then flesh out and uh, a quick description of the, of the view about the partless particles where they reaffirm this idea of there being indivisible particles. That there has to be some essential uh, building blocks to matter in this world. Derek, is there any are there any schools of Buddhism that still believe these early views in any form or have they really all been um, moved beyond? I think the Theravadans still believe that there's atoms, real atoms. Be interesting to ask one 
if you can find one. That would be a good project. Ask some Terrabans. But they, they, they write, you know, they come out with new books on Natter. They just came, the gentleman just came out with a book on the analysis of Natter, an Abhidharma book. You could check in there. Maybe I will, if I remember it. Cool. You know, a basis of mind and mental states, the main thing is that um, they have, they change the way that perception happens, where uh, the sense, and, and the Vibhashikas, the idea was the sense faculty and the, and the sense consciousness were basically uh, the same, and they connected with the sense object to create, uh, and thereby activated the consciousness. And then, uh, and what, and one of the problems in all of these that I that I didn't mention is there's this uh, um, tension between mind and matter. And as I talked about earlier on, mind is primary. They all have this view that they inherit from the uh, larger Indian mindset that uh, uh, there's sort of a, this. Uh, cosmic view of the universe as having all these different realms interpenetrating with different beings and that the mind can travel to all these different places. And uh, so part of the difficulty is then how do you explain matter, which is the opposite of our situation in the West. And then how do you explain if, if there's real matter how do you explain how mind and matter can ever interact? Because they're di they're very different substances. So how can uh, how can mind really interact with matter? And the Vibhasha could sort of just gloss over this that uh, mind connects directly with matter in the form of the sense consciousnesses. And the Sautrantikas. Um, come up with an intermediary, sort of like a bridge between mind and matter called subtle form. The, uh, the sense faculties are made of subtle form and they sort of act as an intermediary between matter and mind. And, and because the Sautrantic could say, well, mind can't interact directly with matter, we can't, the, the sense consciousness can't directly engage its object because they're completely foreign um, realities. They come up with this intermediary of the, they elevate the status of the, uh, the sense faculty, calling it subtle form. And the sense faculty um, receives an impression or data as it's called strangely in this translation about its translator receives data about the objects that it uh, encounters 
in the in the world. And that data is then readable by consciousness. Consciousness can then read the data that is uh, replicated or stored or manifested in the subtle matter. Maybe it's like Braille, you know, how like, uh, you know, sort of, uh, let's, let's say you had this surface that could uh, miraculously manifest Braille and uh, change whatever it says all the time. And so the subtle matter is like uh, experiencing different forms and it takes this, uh, it creates little bumps in it and the consciousness reads the bumps and sees, understands what the, the bumps mean and the bumps are constantly changing based on the, the constantly changing display of uh, outer forms, outer matter. I was thinking it's like qualia, like redness and yeah. I had that roughness. same thought. Actually, I had the same thought. Qualia. So uh, flesh that out a little bit. Uh, what part of the Sautrantika system is qualia? The data. Yeah, the yeah. Su the subtle. So okay, uh, for those who may not be familiar with qualia. You've given the data a cool name, but for you two, that seemed to be satisfying. Why was that satisfying to give it that name? What it, what, uh, um, clearly that meant something to you. It, it helped explain it in a way. What does that do for you? Same because, it. because qualia, we're not really conscious of it, but yet it's somehow in between the matter and the senses, it's kind of like a bridge that's going on. And then your mind's putting all that together and creating an object. What is that? My understanding of it is that it's the actual experience of, of uh, perception. Like Chris, you were saying redness. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine red in your mind, but you're not actually seeing red. What and is you can't really, you can't really explain to somebody who hasn't seen red what red looks like. So, when you're seeing red, what are you seeing, and what is what is the experience? You differentiated those two. Well, I guess I, I guess I was thinking that the data is the qualia when he's using the term data. Like that's what's being transmitted, the redness of something. I, I thought data was not a bad sort of way of explaining it. I mean, from that point of view. Oh, so it is... Uh... Are you sure redness isn't what is extrapolated out of the data? I mean, in the Sautrantika system, if you had asked me that, I would have said that the redness is is, ex, is an extrapolation by the consciousness from the... You're muted, Anya. I don't have any other word for it. Yeah. Right? So it's the direct experience of it. 
I have to admit, I'm a little fuzzy on qualia. So when you said, what do you see when you see red? When I really look, I actually don't see red. I see the word. It's just my mind thinking it's there, but I don't, you know, redness. <laughs> I don't, and that's where, where does qualia come in? But it may be like you say, it's part of the consciousness. But you have an experience of a color. What is this term qualia? Where is that coming from? Um, I think it's, um, I mean, I read it in Daniel Dennett's writings he writes about um consciousness and the latest research on consciousness uh, i i think he came up with the term but honestly i'm not sure <clears throat> so one question though are we trying to answer more the what or the how that it happens in terms of that meeting of mind and the whole notion of how does how does something go from being matter to being an experience of mind. It seems like the, the quality might still be, from what little I'm looking at in definition, still seems like it's kind of a what aspect. It's still sort of defining the characteristics or something or the experience, but the how still remains in the realm of unexplained, right? <laughs> let's let's table the qualia for the moment and come back to the to the uh advancement so to speak that the south Chantukas, uh provide over the vibhashika in terms of uh perception and uh conscious activity and uh combined with that a sort of gloss or a way of categorizing phenomena and um, in the Vibhashika system, the uh, idea of red or redness and the um, sense object that uh, projects um, a, a certain type of light into the retina, which leads to a uh, registering and the faculty are of an equivalent reality status. So you have the actual sensory experience and the idea in the mind of redness are both uh, have, have a similar level of reality. Whereas in the Sautrantika system, they separate those two as being on different two different levels of reality. That the actual sense uh, object and the replication of that object as data and the sense faculty have a reality status that's more uh, of being more real than the uh, conceptualized notion of Redness. Are you saying that in the Vibhashika system um, that the conceptual and non-conceptual are not differentiated? They're differentiated, but they're considered to be on a, on a par. 
in terms of reality status. The conceptual, conceptual phenomena or conceptual objects are as real as non-conceptual objects. So there's no problem. There's not a problem there. Whereas for the Sautrantikas, there's a problem there because concept and non-concept are two different things going on. You you throw me a little bit in terms of concept, but there's a little bit of a sort of pejorative to concept in the Sautrantika, that concept has a lesser sort of reality status. Because you have this specific characterized phenomena and then the generally characterized phenomena. Right. So the instances of the actual sense object and the replication of that as data in the sense faculty are specific instances of real phenomena. Whereas the uh, resulting idea that, oh, that uh, experience is what I'm going to call red or redness. That has a lesser reality status in the Sautrantika system. So they start to to um, have a, a sort of in, uh, interpretive scheme that gives a hierarchy to levels of reality. And uh, presumably the only reason that this would be done is is because it's helpful in terms of progressing along the path. And so it's a way for them to begin to understand that uh, the... um, the true nature of reality is not conceptual, is not an object of conceptual mind. It's interesting because it seems like on one level it's viewed maybe as going forward, but in a way it's also a step backward. If you look at later views that see everything in terms of mind, it it, it seems like they're putting mind mind events on the lower level than what they're seeing as as non-mental events. And their ultimate truth is that these objects truly exist, these specific objects. The fundamental building blocks of, mm-hmm. of specific sensory experiences truly exist. Right. And that the... Um, the objects of conceptual mind do not truly exist. Okay, so that's sort of a little general framework between the two of them. <clears throat> Bottom of 77. The Sautrantika position is untenable for these six reasons. He lists them and then he goes through them and we. Read the, I read the list last week, so let's go through them. The first refutation has already been covered, and that was it's untenable to assert that external objects are ultimately real. 
And um, by external objects here, he's, he's referring to conglomerations of particles, infinitesimal particles. Because conglomerations can be broken down and thereby the perception of that conglomeration as being something disappears. So conglomerations are, morph are morphable. They're constantly morphing. They're impermanent. And uh, so they have no, they're, they're not ultimately real. The ultimately real is the building blocks of those. And he talks almost exclusively of the building blocks of matter, and he doesn't talk about the building blocks of mind, which is unusual, because other presentations of this, these systems, also talk about what is the building block of mind. The building blocks of mind are instant, are uh, um, infinitesimally small moments of consciousness. that combine together and produce the experience of things like um, thoughts about the past and the future, emotions, things like that, perceptions. Those, those are uh, experiences of conglomerations. Okay there, Lori. <laughs> yeah. My dog barked so loud all of a sudden, it totally made me jump. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I thought you saw a ghost or something. I like, oh, <laughs> so annoying. It's very nerve-wracking. <laughs> That's why we have pets, because they calm us down, right? <laughs> they comfort us. They're great, great buddies. Uh, let's see. Okay, second one. It is untenable to assert that obvious forms of matter that manifest have the same nature as consciousness. Oh, dear. I hate this term, obvious forms of matter. What the hell is he talking about? I have a note that says evident. Would that be also the aggregations of things, the gross things as opposed to? I think so. Yes, obvious forms of matter are the aggregations. Right, okay. So, untenable to assert that obvious forms of matter that manifest have the same nature as consciousness. I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> I think he's referring to uh, I don't know. Suffering is not different from happiness. It's weird because that seems like it's the opposite of what they're saying, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Obvious forms of matter that sometimes mm -hmm. share the nature of a single consciousness. 
I don't know. Let's come back to that one next week. I will have to work on that. This matter. Derek? Yeah. Did you read the footnote on that? I did. Did that doesn't doesn't help enough. (laughs) Um, let's see. Oh, I think I get what they're saying because they still think that the partless particles are the real thing and that the aggregates are not, are not, right? And so then what they're saying is that, th- therefore, the aggregates are not real, just like the consciousness. It's, it's like that hierarchy you were talking about before. It may relate to that. Does that make sense? There's only one one consciousness, which is this indivisible moment of consciousness. Hmm. And, the, and the conglomeration of consciousness in, the, in terms of, for example, the experience of happiness and suffering are uh, conglomerate, fictitious conglomerations. He's talking about matter here. We experience obvious forms on the next page of matter that manifests as being different from consciousness. Does this not impute your own position that these are of the same nature as consciousness? This position leads to nothing but contradictions because a single consciousness established to exist externally so it could not be the inner perceiving agent because happiness and suffering could come together at the same time time in a single consciousness each canceling the other out 138 <laughs> I have to come back to this one this yeah well Chempa you know like uh, later on I'm familiar with all these uh, texts that present the tenets that are written hundreds of years later finding that in those hundreds of years, they've developed a very different form from his. So his is very early, and it's very unusual. Anyway, I'm going to have to pass on this one for now. Third, even though the three conditions necessary for consciousness to perceive visual forms are complete. Okay, so we went briefly through the the, uh, conditions He's saying that three out of the, he's talking about the first three out of the four. So the note gives. It's his terminology. The sense object is the condition that provides the frame of reference. So we talked about there being four conditions to uh, sense perception happening. Really, there's four conditions to any type of consciousness occurring. There's what's called the object condition. He's saying the sense object, when you have sense perception, the sense object is the condition that provides the frame of reference, meaning it's what's referred to. It's what we become conscious of. It's the object. So these days it's called the object condition. Then we have what's generally usually called the dominant condition, which means what sense faculty did it occur within? Are we talking about 
translator and a note on uh, 130, note 139 on page 416 says, the sense faculty is the governing condition as, as opposed to dominant. So you have a sense object, you have a corresponding sense faculty, and then the unobstructed avenue of consciousness is the immediate condition. And uh, this is called the immediate, usually called the immediately preceding condition. And it's referring to the fact that there's a moment of consciousness before the present moment of consciousness, because consciousness is a stream of moments. And in order for one moment of consciousness to arise, it needs the prior moment of consciousness to um, end and thereby give rise to the next moment in the continuum of consciousness. So we have the, uh, the object condition, the dominant condition, the uh, immediately preceding condition. Okay. So he says, um, even though the three conditions necessary for consciousness to perceive visual forms might be complete, if an object that presents as data is inferred through some arbitrary criteria, why couldn't one just as well prove from such arbitrary criteria in one's perception that there was an invisible spirit at work? And his footnote, 140, says, the Chittimachans consider the Sauchantika's reasons for positing an imperceptible object to be arbitrary and thus invalid. So um, he's attacking this idea of the Sauchantika's where of that, uh, the, this idea that basically the outer object is imperceptible, which is sort of an odd word to use, imperceptible. Uh, but to consciousness, because consciousness perceives the intermediary, perceives the data. The sense faculty perceives the outer object. And so, thereby, um, uh, in, in what sense um, is that different than there being invisible objects out there? Basically, the objects, sense objects, color, sound, and so forth, are invisible to consciousness, but they're picked up by the sense faculty. Now, if the sense faculty was tuned to, to uh, register data from invisible beings, then you would see invisible beings. Your consciousness would become aware of invisible beings because the data you would be reading the data in the sense consciousness. And you would, in effect, see an invisible being. You know, let's say the sense faculty could pick up the heat from an invisible being and register that as color. Just <clears throat> because that's the way it registers invisible being heat. It's a little bit of an abstruse argument, <laughs> as many of them are, arguing against this idea of there being. Uh, basically, he's he's uh, picking up on the Chittimachans, and Chittimachans are famous for uh, believing that there's mind only, and so they're chipping away at this idea that there's a, this an outer object, 
Whereas the Sautrantikas are saying there is an outer object, but we never perceive it. We only perceive the, the in, internal faculties, receipt of data, you know, uh, um, uh, receipt of data. It, uh, it uh, receives data from the outer object. And uh, the Chittimachans are saying, well, how do you know that there's an, actually an outer object? How can you prove that? All you know is that the, the sense faculty has some data in it. Why do you assume that that came from outside? Maybe that came from inside the sense faculty. And all there are is sense faculties. You know, it's the old, in the West, they call this, there's a famous phrase for this. Anybody know the consciousness in the world of mind and consciousness study? It's called the brain in a vat um, argument. How do we know that we're just we're not just a brain in a vat, and we have electrodes hooked up to us that are projecting the sensation of movement and outer sense objects and sound and temperature? You know, just like in wasn't there a movie about that? I know there Matrix. was a the book, Matrix, the Matrix, and also uh, I remember a short story by Raoul Dahl, where very vicious where. <laughs> The husband, I think it's the husband, uh, kills his wife and keeps the brain in some liquid, and he likes to smoke, and he blows smoke and <laughs> on this brain <laughs> that he's preserved. I remember this from oh, years ago. <laughs> and and is that conscious? And is that consciousness aware of what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So this the the argument is. How do we have any proof that there's an outside world? We, we could just be a brain hooked up into in a vat to uh, various electrodes that are stimulating different parts of the brain, giving us the, the sensation of like when you move your body, uh, when you think move your body, that you feel as if there's a body there that's moved. But don't, don't the Sotrantikas have talk about deceived and mistaken consciousnesses they do they do but they don't they don't consider the perception of an outside world to be a deceived or mistaken consciousness they still think there's an outside world that's causing the uh, replication of the data in the faculty and right. so uh, longchenpa is using the chitamachan argument of like that's not a proof that there's external objects you know, if you set up this system where consciousness is looking at the sense faculty and the sense faculty has this data in it, why do you, there's, there's no proof that that data came from an outside object. So he's refuting that system. Or if the mind were not existent in the body during meditative stability, this is a good one into existence again afterward, this would be a case of production without cause since consciousness would have been uh, arrested previously. So let's uh, look at his footnotes just to, uh, let's see. Okay, so what this is talking about is when you when you go into cessation trance in the morning 
after your coffee, you wake up, you have coffee, and you sit down on your cushion. And you go into Naroda Samadpati, which is the cessation trance. That's the highest state of meditative attainment in the Theravada or the Hinayana system. And basically, the mind stops functioning, supposedly, in that state. So then when you have to finish meditating and get up and go to work, why do you have the same mind as before? Where does that mind come from? It stopped. It disappeared. That's how Trantikas don't believe there's any sort of underlying continuity of mind like the Aliyah Vishnana that the Chittamantras have. So they, they believe that the mind just literally stopped. Everything went blank. It's like the computer went off and everything went blank. And then you turn the computer back on. And, and this is a good question. Like you turn the computer off and there's no electric, you unplug it. Then you turn the computer back on, and the computer still has the data, the same data that was there when you turned it off, didn't erase it, right? And so they believe that uh, not only is the data still there when you come back from the trance state, but the mind is the same. It's the same mind, or that there is a mind. So the question is, if the mind ceased when you went into cessation trance, what made the mind reappear when you ended the cessation trance? How do you ever come out of cessation trance? What is it that produces that first moment of mind? You've come up with this untenable position that you can sever the continuity of mind, and then when you stop severing it, it'll come back. Like you cut off a arm of an octopus, and it just comes back. By the way, you all got to see this movie, My Teacher, the Octopus. It's a great movie. Great documentary. Amazing creatures. Anyway, so that's the, the fourth complaint. He's registering his complaints. Fifth, okay, generic ideas. So we talked vaguely about concepts versus uh, so-called so real sensory phenomena. And... Uh, Henrietta lets slip the, the terms that have become now in vogue among most translators for these two classes of beings, where uh, conceptual ideas are called generally characterized and uh, specific sensory phenomena. Uh, particles of matter and moments of mind are called specifically characterized phenomena. Phenomena that has that exist in specific point instances. You mentioned it last week. Oh, did I? Damn. <laughs> um, and uh, the idea is that concepts—they're not discrete. They don't like instantaneously dissolve. They, you know, change. They morph like sporadically. Each time you think of, you know, what is what do you your dream car or whatever, you know, it changes, it morphs a little bit here and there. So general ideas, concepts um, don't have the, the reality status and the nature of uh, sense objects or, or so-called real ex, uh, manifest phenomena. In this book, he's calling those, he's calling concepts generic ideas. 
So when we talk about redness, redness is a generic idea because there's many, there's infinite number of uh, possible experiences of light entering into eyeballs that can be called red. Do you agree on that? And so we, we come up with this overarching name for all of those experiences of that type of light. We call it red or redness. That redness doesn't really exist. It's just a generic idea that we use as a convenient way of discussing things. And like we all know like the dividing line between red and uh, like where red and orange blend, you know, if you were to, uh, when you, if you look at these very subtle uh, color charts, and there's a point where you can't really tell red and orange together, and each one of us would probably separate red and orange in a slightly different place. You know, so red is not a discrete phenomena. If generic ideas were real entities of the perceptual process. So while the, the Sautronticos have um, come up with a, a different way of talking about concepts from specifically characterized phenomena, they still consider them to be real entities, functioning things, that, that things, functioning things in the sense that they, they can produce a, a result. They have functional efficacy. And uh, the Chittamatrans and Longchenpa and the Madhyamakas are disputing that. If generic ideas were real entities of the perceptual process, so when you perceive a generic idea, a concept, this would mean that there would be no sequence to successive moments of consciousness. And uh, let's see, vaguely he's saying that uh, concepts um, don't don't uh, exist in an orderly se sequence, chronological sequence. You can think about concepts uh, in, a, in a totally helter-skelter uh, manner. They don't go like a train of, train of thought type thing. Let's see, 143. Oh, uh, the translator in this in this note on uh, 416, note 143, gives a helpful way of understanding this distinction between generic ideas and specific characteristics, and that um, specifically characterized phenomena have distinct locations and time when they exist in that location, whereas generic ideas, they don't really exist anywhere. And they don't like exist now and then they're gone. They sort of go away when you don't think about them and then they come back. Now Trondica's position is that generic ideas which lack such distinctions of specific time and location have the same ontological status as objects perceived by the sense consciousness. So even though they're generic ideas, they still have the same hierarchical uh, reality status, which is sort of crazy. Chittamacha's object that this would disrupt the connection between any given moment of the perception of an object and the immediately succeeding moment of cognition of that perception. Uh, 
Uh, one implication of this Chittamatra critique is that the conceptual mode of consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty, which is able to cognize the three times and thus conceive of a generic idea, would have to function as though non-conceptual like the sense consciousnesses, which are capable of perceiving only in the present moment. That's a little bit of an obscure statement. If, to, Mildly. Anyway, the, the main thrust is that uh, it's absurd to consider generic ideas as having the same level of reality status as specifically characterized phenomena. This may seem trivial, trivial but it's important when we come to the idea of, of important things like me. Not me, but the self. I'm not important. Six, uh, six, the specific characteristic of sound is such that it does not manifest as a generic idea and is not apprehended conceptual. This is so cool. I love that the fact that they're obsessed with how does sound convey meaning? <laughs> sound is an inanimate object that's a specifically characteristic phenomenon. And how do we derive meaning from sounds? Like you hear the fire horn in your town goes off in a pattern, right? And all the fire people, they go to the right place, you know, because they have a whole system of, of the, the areas divided into segments, and each segment has its own code, right? So they all know where to go when the fire horn, you guys knew this, right? <laughs> or how about that sound coming out of your mouth? That's a basic sound, isn't it? Yeah. It's just this, these sound waves, which is matter, right? And you guys are pretending <laughs> to find meaning. Saying, whereas really what I'm saying is totally meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> How does that create, you know, you guys are forming generic ideas out of things that I'm saying. As I said, the thing with the fire horn, you're imagining hearing the fire horn and you're wherever the hell you live, and then you hear the fire trucks go in a certain direction. That's a generic idea. That's a concept, right? You're, you're having these imaginations. So how does that transition happen? It's amazing. Is it any different than, say, the eye perceiving a shape that we call a vase? I think it is. I think it is. Do other people feel it's different? You know, you have a name for everything. So you see a bulbous-shaped thing with a smaller neck, and you think, we don't really think vase, but they did. They would think vase. Well, you know, you're just thinking the name, but... Um, I mean, you see this shape. But, but words, words convey... Uh, all these images and subtle shades of meaning and stuff. You know, so if you say the word vase, then you come up with a generic idea of a vase. We all have like some vision, visual uh, picture in our mind of a vase. It's all different. Everybody has their own. Whereas if we all see an actual vase, um, we may call it vase and, and mean each means something different, but... But that vase that we're all seeing is a specific right. object as opposed to the thought of a vase 
which will be different for everybody. Right, but the, the specifically characterized phenomena in this case conveys specifically characterized uh, experience. And, and the way the perception works, as they described, is there's the first moment of the, the object and then the second moment of the, the data and the faculty and the third moment of consciousness. And then the fourth moment is the conceptual mind thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Henrietta, what about like when the eye sees a word as he goes on to say? Yeah, read that. Nor does what is written constitute something that expresses meaning. If it did, it would mean that a functioning eye seeing of what was written would lead to the insight that comprehended the meaning being expressed. Definitely seems like a very different order of uh, conveyance of meaning from matter. Therefore, the true definition of what expresses meaning, either uh, sound or written words, is the natural manifestation of word-based ideas, which involves specific factors of connection and familiarity, because it is from these that knowledge actually occurs, this comprehension of the meaning being expressed. The term connection refers here to an unconfused orderly sequence, while familiarity refers to the mind ascertaining this. So, Long Chenpa is saying that the the sound of words and their written manifestation is not actually what triggers the meaning. But what triggers the meaning is that there's a stored memory of a matching between the sound and the written letters of uh, conceptual ideas, generic ideas that are triggered by seeing those. So if you see letters in another language, doesn't doesn't you know you know if uh, that's that's sort of the opposite proof is that when you see letters in a language that you don't understand, it doesn't trigger meaning. So there, there's the meaning is not inherently contained in the letters or the sound. You know you hear people talking Chinese on the train and it's just like noise. Anyway, so so much for the Sautrantika system. <laughs> but it is the foundation upon which all the other systems debate, as I, I think I said before. So it's important to learn the Sautrantikas. Particular- I feel I need to defend them. <laughs> hey, yeah, they're, they're great. They're they're very down to earth compared to some of the others. You know, the Chittamatras are just way out there, and the Madhyamakas are just just arrogant. You know, <laughs> troublemakers. And the Sautrantikas are logical. It's a wonderful system. And he launches into this analysis of the Pratyekabuddha approach, which is really bizarre. Later, you know, later on texts that go through tenets don't mix uh, yanas. Or like uh, yanas, as in the in the way of like Shravakayana and Pratyeka Buddhayana, and the people who travel those paths, those yanas, with the views. And uh, Longchenpa does this 
which I find really interesting because Trump Rinpoche does this too in the profound treasury. If you read uh, the end of volumes one and two where he goes through the path, you see this similar sort of blending. Anyway, at this point, I won't, I will not give the refutation of the Pratyeka Buddha approach. Phew. Aside from its acceptance of a perceiving agent as an ultimately real entity. That's a pretty heavy diss. You know, uh, they may take offense that he said this about them. They actually accept a perceiving agent as an ultimately real entity. I think that you have to take that with a glass of water at least. This approach resembles the Chitta Mantra approach. Interestingly, Travaka schools accept the non-existence of any personal identity, but they maintain that minute particles, minute, minute, real entities that are perceived and sense objects do have ultimate existence in the Pratyeka Buddha approach. However, these particles are held to be non-existent. So this intricate system of slightly, in, uh, in, slight incremental progress between different levels, you know, little bit closer to the ultimate view these Pratyeka Buddhas. I'm going to skip the quote. The method by which this path is traversed parallels for the most part that of Shravaka, and so is subsumed, subsumed under that heading, which is the next big chapter of the book. Um, skipping the quote, therefore, I've not written here of this approach since the refutation of its position is entailed in the above refutation of the Shravaka schools as well as in the refutation of the Chitramantra below. Mahayana, uh, let's see, two parts to Mahayana, the superior uh, uh, explanation of why it's superior, and then a detailed analysis of the different systems, the superiority. So there's this famous. Uh, uh, quote from the Ornament of the Sutras by Maitreya, Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, where he lists, I think, seven greatnesses of Mahayana, which Trump Rinpoche goes through in the Mahayana transcripts, I believe. Greatness of scope, as well as twofold accomplishments of scope as the mouthwash accomplishment as your morning cereal. Timeless awareness, the application of diligence is way more than seven. Every kind of skillful means the supreme accomplishment of what is authentic and the supreme enlightened activity of Buddhahood. Yeah, that's seven. Derek, what does he mean by, or what is meant by authentic in this quote? Yeah, where does uh, the supreme accomplishment of what is real? That's what that means, of what is real. Supreme accomplishment of what is real. The supreme enlightened activity, meaning the supreme accomplishment of Buddhahood, of uh, Dharmakaya, the three kayas, is, is the only thing that's really real. Got and, it. And from that flows the enlightened activity of Buddhahood. So before that was skillful means of the Bodhisattva, the Upaya, uh, before that was the application of diligence. So the, the Mahayana has a way greater sense of uh, diligence over vast time periods than the Hinayana or Shravakas. Timeless awareness is prajna. That sees the emptiness of uh, both types of identity. 
twofold accomplishment on the page before is the accomplishment of the benefit for oneself and others. Benefit for oneself is one's own enlightenment, and the benefit for others is the uh, ceaseless Buddha activity, the enlightening of others. And the greatness of scope is uh, that we include all sentient beings in our purview, as opposed to just ourselves. So those seven greatnesses. And uh, maybe we'll make it through these, let's see, with respect to scope, back on 80. To make providing for one's own welfare one's ultimate objective is the lesser scope, whereas to be concerned solely with ensuring the welfare of others is the greater. In terms of accomplishment, it's the greater accomplishment to unite the two distinctive qualities of skillful means and sublime knowing. But the lesser accomplishment is to be deficient in either or both. I got that one wrong. The two accomplishments of self and other. Oh, well. Greater is to unite skillful means in knowing that the lesser is to be deficient in either. Okay, skipping the quotes with skillful means, which embody compassion and sublime knowing. Um, why is he skipping to skillful means? Can you talk about um, sublime knowing? Yeah, it's funny. He's doing skillful means twice. Okay. Yeah, he's still talking about the accomplishment that brings together skillful means and sublime knowing. Sublime knowing is uh, prajna, the knowing of the emptiness of self and phenomena, shunyata. So with skillful means, which embodies compassion and sublime knowing, where one is not limited to any dualistic framework, one transcends both conditioned existence and quiescence, nirvana and samsara. With respect to timeless awareness, prajnana, uh, I think, Shravakas and Prajnana Buddhas have a lesser degree of awareness. <coughs> Sublime knowing versus timeless awareness. I'm understanding these as being prajna and jnana. Let's see. Sublime knowing is prajna. And what was the other one? Uh, we don't have time for it. Timeless awareness, yes, is yeshe, is jnana. Okay. Sublime knowing is prajna. So with respect to jnana on the bottom of 80, Shravakas and Pratyekabuddhas have a lesser degree of this type of awareness. And the distinction is that jnana is completely non-dual versus prajna still has a sense of there being a, <coughs> an object condition. The former, Shravakas realize merely the non-existence of a personal identity. The latter realize in addition only one aspect of the non-existence of any identity of phenomena. That is the lack of any independent nature of what are perceived as objects. So here's this little presentation of one and a half fold egolessness, as it's called by, uh, in the technical term by Trump Rinpoche coined, one and a half fold egolessness. 
So Shravakas realize one fold of egolessness and Pratyeka Buddhas realize one and a half fold. And so the second uh, fold of the two folds is the uh, the lack of the non-existence of any phenomenal identity. And there's two parts to, to uh, the non-existence of phenomenal identity or identity of phenomena. There's the object side and the subject side. And they realize the object side of the absence of phenomenal identity. And this is a very subtle point that someday when we achieve the eighth Bhumi, we'll understand. I'd like you to send me a postcard at that point, please. I'll pay the postage. Uh, let's see, the greater approach is that of bodhisattvas who realize that everything is devoid of either of the two kinds. With respect to diligence, the lesser is one in which after a short time enthusiasm wanes and the welfare of others is ignored. And the greater approach, one exerts oneself for a long period of time with great enthusiasm. <clears throat> Skipping the quote, uh, two quotes. In addition, let's see, lots of quotes. Okay, skipping down with respect to skillful means in the lesser approach, one seeks a state of mere quiescence for oneself alone, meaning uh, nirvana, individual nirvana. And the greater approach is the opposite, is uh, non-quiescent nirvana, or a nirvana for all sentient beings. Skipping the quote with respect to accomplishment, a limited state of, of mere quiescence, of uh, sort of limited uh, nirvana is the lesser achievement, whereas the supreme nirvana that transcends the extremes of um, the limited type of nirvana, which has a dualistic sense of nirvana as opposed to samsara. But supreme nirvana goes beyond the dualism of samsara nirvana, and that's the great achievement. On the next page, with respect to enlightened activity, Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas remain quiescent in basic space, and so benefit others, for others does not ensue. This is the idea that um, you got to explain, if everybody has Buddha nature, everybody's going to become a Buddha. So what happens to Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas? They say they go, they disappear when they achieve nirvana. The Mahayana, later Mahayana tradition says, no, they don't really disappear into nirvana. They just go into uh, a sort of semi, semi-trance-like state of semi, a trance-like state of semi-nirvana. And then the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas wake him up and say, come on, it's further to go. You got to get going. Got to go further, be a Bodhisattva. Mahayana approach, skipping the quote, once one has awakened to Buddhahood, one acts to benefit beings until samsara is emptied. What would it sound like if samsara was empty? Let's see, skipping down. So that's it, that's the seven. A lot of nice quotes, sorry to skip them. A detailed analysis of the Mahayana approach. Although there are many texts that expound the opinions of various masters presenting particular analyses, and syntheses. Here I will discuss the two major traditions. Interestingly, he lumps together Yogacara and Chittamantra and the Madhyamaka system. First, the Chittamantra. 
my discussion of this has two parts. It's general and specific characters. I mean, tenants. Just kidding. General tenants. Chittamantras hold that all that is knowable is subsumed under three headings. Imputation, dependence, and the absolute. And this is in uh, sort of distinction to when we began the Vaibhashikas. He said, the Shravak adherents of the Vaibhashikas believe there are five bases of the knowable, which are different kinds of substantial entities. Bases of form, mind, and so forth on page 69. Those five bases that we've been through and that we've seen charts of form, mind, mental states, distinct formative factors, or non-associated phenomena, and then uncompounded phenomena. And here, the bases of knowledge all that is noble is subsumed under three headings, imputation, dependence, and absolute. They don't say these are different kinds of substantial entities, which leads one to conclude that these are not different kinds of substantial entities, but these are different ways of viewing all entities. It's very important to understand what's being conveyed in these three, what are usually called the three natures before we dive into them. Because you easily get lost in the specific distinctions of these three natures, which are somewhat subtle and require a bit of a stretch of the imagination, let's say, or of the understanding. But um, they're, they're taking the progressive uh, classification of phenomena that Begin with Vaibhashika, where you have those five substantially existent things, form, mind, mental states, uh, distinct formative factors, like words and letters and time and space and so forth, and concepts, and uh, uncompounded phenomena like nirvana. And, um, and then the, the Sautrantikas, have a slight uh, rearrangement of things where um, they, they separate out the distinct formative factors as being uh, generally characterized phenomena as opposed to specifically characterized. And the nuance that we didn't really pick up on, but the nuance is this word substantially existent. It's very hard to, to precisely define what does this mean substantially existent. But I think that the best way to think about what does substantially existent mean is that when we say substantially existent in, in the West, we mean it has matter to it. It has substance, right? And for us, substance means matter. So if you live in the, in the East and you believe that there's two substances, mind and matter, as opposed to us, we believe basically there's one substance, matter, energy, matter, right? So we say if it has substance, it's sort of like a real entity, has, has entity-ness. For them, substance means that it has real entity, which means that it has either mind or matter. So it's substantially existing. So it's like real. It, like you can point to it, you can touch it, see it, or think it. You know, and they include think it, which is a leap for us, but it's on the same ontological level, 
hierarchically as matter is for us. Thoughts, mind, uh, emotions, mental functions, and the uh, things like, and the concepts that go along with them, time and space and production and impermanence and all that fun stuff that's in that weird category, distinctive formative factors, right? Are we in Satantrika now you're describing? Um, I'm, I'm in uh, Vaibhashika slash Satantrika. Because uh, didn't you say earlier that Satantrika kind of um, lowers the reality level of the concepts or thoughts? Right. They, so they say, uh, so the Vaibhashikas have that all five bases, all five categories are substantially existent, including concepts. And as uh, Cynthia's pointing out or hinting at or indicating, the Satrantikas say, well, they're all real, but the distinct formative factors, concepts, they're not substantially existent. They're nominally existent, but they're still existent. And then the Chittamatras are saying, are saying, um, well, those concepts, they're not even really existent. So they denigrate the concepts one step further. So concepts, they got kicked down a notch by the Savitrantans. They first they were substantially real in the Vaibhashikas. And the Savitrantans, they're real, but they're not substantial. In the Chittamatras, they're neither real nor substantial. The only thing that's uh, substantial in the Chittamatrans is what's called the dependent nature. Mind. The only thing that's real is mind, because all they believe is that there's mind. There's no external object. So uh, mind in the sort of small, uh, small M sense is the dependent nature. And uh, that's the that's sort of substantially real without right. an object. Hold on one second. And then, and then the only thing that's truly real is this so-called completely purified nature, which is the true mind with like a big M. We'll go through that for some more. Uh, Henrietta. So uh, in... In the uh, dependent nature category, are we talking about the six consciousnesses when you say mind? Do you mean minds? Yes, the, the different consciousnesses, the different types and levels of consciousness. Con and six as opposed to eight? or? Well, in the Chittamatra, it's generally eight. So eight, okay. Those, those details that you're mentioning will go through. When we go through the three categories, so you're jumping a little bit. But that's just a broad uh, framework of like what's real. And there's different levels of what's real. And as you go through the different schools, they change the chairs around the table, so to speak. Can I ask a, a little question on this? I was puzzling it over it earlier when you said this about the the raising and lower, you know, the hierarchy of what was considered, you know, in terms of concepts. And it, it struck me before, but now again, it seems like it, um, it's, it seems odd that because the mind only, the Chittamatra elevate mind to being above everything else, or the, the, being the only thing that, or that everything is mind. And yet concepts 
it seems so it seems like that you would think that what is conceptual would be equally real because everything is in that sense a, a mind entity as opposed to an outer actual thing right they've uh They've elevated mind as the subject, regardless of the object. So mind, in the sense of a conceptual mind and a non-conceptual mind, is the same mind. But the objects of mind vary. So the, the conceptual objects are complete fictions, whereas the non-conceptual objects of mind are uh, sort of uh, dreamlike realities and that they function interdependently. They have no separate existence outside of the mind. I'm just, I'm just wondering why they did, can, hmm, I, I guess, yeah, I don't quite understand the... Well, they said that all you can know that really exists is your mind. You know, they're taking that argument that, that he, uh, Longchenpa, leveled against the South Tronticos in terms of the invisible spirit, right. that thing. You know, how do you know there's an external object? You're saying that all you perceive is the the data and the faculty. Right. That part I understand. I guess the part I don't understand is it seems like based on that notion of elevating mind as everything being mind, that the making the distinction of conceptual being lesser doesn't make so much sense. I'm, I'm not sure. I, it's funny. I never thought about that before, but. The idea that the non-conceptual, meaning the things that we think of as having extra reality and they don't, um, they give them more sense of reality than those things that don't. But I don't, I don't see why they would make that distinction. Isn't, isn't there a difference between concepts and conceptual mind? Sure. Anyway, don't have to get hung up on it. I'm just... it's. I'm, the concepts are the object or the referent of conceptual mind, right? <clears throat> that's, so that's what I tried saying initially to Cynthia, is that conceptual mind and non-conceptual mind is the same mind. It just has, has different, different objects. Objects, right. I just don't understand why the different objects are given a different um, sort of rating of reality. Because conceptual objects have no rhyme or reason, whereas non-conceptual objects have their own logic. Even Op in a mind-only world. Even in a mind-only world, they operate interdependently. Well, you, you could also you could also point out that this level of schema is being used to better decipher what is real from what is not real given we're in an imaginary sort of setting. And even that, the mind itself is not real. Um, but what you could say is, like, the mind itself is as inscrutable as the phenomena which arises in it, which is just that, the mind. So not even the mind itself could be said to be real, but it is ultimately what you're experiencing, but you can't put your finger on it either. That was nicely said. I like that. And thus emptiness. So, Very so in other words, this is still being used to better decipher what is real versus what is not, given these limitations. 
It's the only thing that you can ever experience, yet you can't identify it. Thank you for that emphasis. <laughs> With the horn. I don't know who has By a By the way, I, just to kind of po- just to, just to interestingly point out, um, I don't know if I shared it, but like Chinese calligraphy, and in Chinese calligraphy, the 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 ideogram for for Buddha literally translates in Chinese as one who is inscrutable or one whose finger you cannot place on, you know, and say that's who he is. So the definition of Buddha is one who is inscrutable. Just to kind of connect those dots right there, if you can't put your finger on it, is kind of what's being pointed to in a sense. Cool. Thank you. Can't put your finger on it. So with that, let's let's go briefly through the details of these three categories, and I think we'll come back to them next week given that we have only 10 minutes, but we can start. So imputation, and I'm going to give you some synonyms, alternate translations for these. Uh, this one is sometimes known as the imaginary. Imaginary phenomena exist only by imputation. Is the way those two terms come together. Imaginary phenomena exist only by way of imputation, conceptual imputation. Imputation is here defined as the mind assigning and describing things in terms of categories, conceptualizing. If we analyze this, we find that there is purely theoretical imputation. This is what you learn in school, which concerns things that may be perceived clearly but are non-existent. And he gives an example of the image of two moons. Where do you see two moons? What is he talking about, this image of two moons? In the note, there's mention of like when you push on your eyeball and it creates two images of the moon, uh, which when I read in the footnote, like made all of this make so much sense to me. That's great. How else can you see two moons without pushing on your eyeball? Reflection. Reflection in what? In water, in the lake. Uh, So then you would see two reflections of the moon. Mary Beth. Yeah. One in the sky and one in the water. One in the sky, one in the water, yeah. Also, you can relax your uh, binocular vision when you look at the moon and split your your stereoscopic vision. And then you see two moons, right? Do you guys know how to do that? You relax. Yeah. Don't press on your eyeballs to make that happen. Or, or you can just your uh, uh, focal length. So you, you're staring up at the moon, then you put your finger in front of you. You look at the at your finger, and then there's two moons, right? And the idea is that. Uh, there are not really two moons. It's just a matter of perceiving it that way. As well as things, so that's like a, a mundane example, you know, uh, uh, sensory sort of hallucinations. And then a much more relevant example of what he's calling purely theoretical imputation is identity. This notion that 
things have something that makes them what they are. They have an identity. We all have identities, but not really. Just kidding, we don't have an identity. In addition, there's imputation involving categories. Include all manner of systematic and detailed analyses and all that can be labeled in terms of letters, words, and phrases. So this is sort of like uh, conceptuality that has a, a sort of reference point, so it's sort of dependent conceptuality where you create systems and you define things in relation to each other and thereby things gain meaning because you, you have this sort of coherence of uh, relationships as well as uh, the understanding of language. These ways of analyzing things, beginning with categories such as words and their underlying meaning, or the expressions of meaning and the meaning thus expressed, up to and including categories such as the mind-body aggregates. These are, these are imaginary imputed phenomena. This is a good one because you, you wouldn't you would think well those are specifically characterized you know those are like right mind body aggregates the components of perception and so forth are conceptual elaborations imposed. So the idea is that all of those are are groupings. When we talk about the aggregates, they're a group. Anything that's a group, a collection, is uh, a f an imputed, imaginary phenomenon. Collections don't really exist. So the aggregates are heaps, and the components of perception are also groupings. And so groupings are just conceptual labels that are placed upon the the uh, objects that we believe fall within those categories. All of these are conceptual elaborations. The idea that anything that we have a name for exists is a conceptual elaboration. Anything that you have a name for, if you can name it, it's a conceptual phenomenon. Eric? Yeah. I, I'm getting this feeling that um, the way he's describing this uh, nature, that um, he's sort of saying, well, all that work that the Vibhashikas did with, you know, the skandhas and the ayatanas and the datus, that's not really necessary? Or do they kind of still accept all of that? Oh, no, they, they, they think that it's, uh, um, well, they think that it's imaginary. Yeah. So, I mean, first you had the foundational schools establishing all of that, right? Matter of categories and breaking everything down and means skillful means. Yeah, and now they appreciate the skillful means that you have to start somewhere, and you have to, in order to effectively realize the the import of this school, you have to build up a framework that you can then take apart. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, I mean, in terms of who did that, it, it wasn't just the Vibhaj, because it was the Buddha himself who laid out some of those categories, right? Yeah, you can't blame the Vibhajikas. 
Right, the Buddha. So it was his skillful means that, you know, set up all these things in order to later shoot them down. Well, we think so. I mean, they were imputedly attributed to him. Right. We have no idea, really. We have no idea. (laughs) But so it is said. So we can say. Uh, Let's see. That's... Uh, they are thus imputed in that they serve as a means, as means to bring about understanding. So anything that conveys conceptual understanding without there necessarily being any connection between them and the objects being analyzed. That category, while challenging and uh, sort of life-threatening, so to speak, is relatively easy to understand compared to the others. Dependence. As we go through dependence, think about not independence, but think about not what your country can do for you. Yes, never, sorry. Think about what is it that's dependent on what? Anyway, this is two aspects. First, impure dependence pertains to the myriad specific manifestations that constitute the animate and inanimate universe. These are different than the skandhas and the components of perception. What's the difference? The skandhas and the components of perception are conceptual frameworks for getting at the actual specific manifestations that constitute the animate and animate universe. Those are what really make up the elements of the skandhas and so forth. But to talk about skandhas, to give them names, you immediately turn them into concepts. Arising because of minds. So, okay, these, these phenomena that are dependent, real specific, so-called specifically characterized phenomena, uh, they arise because of minds, myriad habit patterns. So they're all the stuff of mind. Where did those habit patterns start? When did they prior, prior actions? Prior to the prior? What about the ones that were prior to those? And ongoing endlessly into the Hall of Mirrors. All stored in the Alia Vishnana, right? Manifestations include sense objects, perception, as opposed to the components of perception, and one's physical embodiment. Here the term sense objects refers to the five kinds of objects, visual forms, and so forth. Perception refers to the eight avenues of consciousness. So here we have the eight consciousnesses, which we'll go through. Um, That is consciousness that is established as fields for sensory experience as a result of other conditions. Physical embodiment refers to the mind, body, aggregates that perpetuate samsara. These manifestations are are classified as dependent by virtue of the fact that they depend on other conditions, namely karma and habit patterns. Second, pure dependence pertains to utterly pure realms of experience, aspects of timeless awareness, shnana, and so forth. These are considered 
in, uh, dependent on that they rely on circumstances that are conditioned by the power of obscurations being purified these are like buddha fields things like that pure dependent phenomena finally the absolute has two aspects first there's the unchanging absolute that is the way of abiding the ultimate ground of all experience the basic space of phenomena that is utterly lucid by its very nature i.e buddha nature and I'll go through these quotes because they're rather famous. From the highest continuum, which is the Mahayana Uttara Tantra by Maitreya. As it was before, so it is later on. Unchanging suchness itself. According to the ornament of sutras, although there's no difference between some earlier state, i.e. as a samsaric being, ascension being, and then a later one as a Buddha, still suchness has become purified that contradiction of like of uh, there's no difference between sentient beings and buddhas but suchness was purified that's why it's in quotation marks i guess <laughs> <laughs> i.e purified moreover the sutra of the dense array of uh, adornment states with the term ground of all experience that essence has been very aptly labeled <laughs> that's a very funny quote <laughs> I, I couldn't really tell you what that means to be honest <laughs> it sounds good so there's supposed to be another header here that says the eight consciousnesses because then he's going to launch into this complicated exposition of the eight consciousnesses and how they operate which is beyond the scope of tonight even if you use scope on a daily basis I, yes just ask um the the dependent nature is that sort of a, a transitional nature that it you're it it has two because of those two aspects which are pointing into seem to point in two different directions no uh, does it have that so quality of transitional in the sense of it can change yeah and yes i guess it, well it, it's dependent upon causes and conditions so it's dependent upon the nature of it, the mind because it is the, the morphing of the mind, the manifestation of mind. The dependent is very hard to understand. It's this very elusive thing. The pure absolute, you know, is, it, it seems sort of easy. It's just like, oh, that's like empty luminosity or something. You know, it's the, the true nature, Buddha nature. But what the hell is dependent? Does well, it... Is is it karma? Your karma? Individual karma? That's Well, it manifests uh, propelled by karma. And so it, it uh, stores karma, it matures karma, and it uh, uh, propagates further karma. The three, you know, the three aspects of uh, karma or the Aliyah Vishnana has those three aspects of it stores karmic propensities. It uh, gives birth to new karmic uh, streams. And then it uh, 
enjoys, so to speak, the results of karmic activity. Um, it's a very uh, elusive system, the dependent. It's basically the Aliya Vijnana. That's the easiest way to understand it. And that's the, mm -hmm. the more uh, direct way of presenting it, is that the Aliya Vijnana is the dependent nature. And the Aliya Vishnana pretends to manifest as the other six conscious, other seven consciousnesses, but really it's just the Aliya Vishnana morphing and uh, independent, independence upon its prior karmic functioning. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And then uh, upon enlightenment, if somehow your karmic conditioning ends up uh, leading you to realize the uh, dependent nature of the Ali Vishnana and the pure absolute nature of the Buddha nature, of the true nature of your mind, then the Ali Vishnana goes through a revulsion, what's called a revulsion. It revolts and it sort of turns in on itself, it's sort of like it, it folds in on itself and, and turns into the the uh, nature of the Dharmakaya. And then you have the, the pure dependent nature of the Buddha fields, where the Dharma, where the Trikaya, it becomes the Trikaya, sorry, where the Trikayas live. You know, so it's sort of like, we can look at it in a number of ways, but you know, one way of looking at it is, is sort of like, how did we went through it? We try to understand these things progressively as separate concepts or separate things, you know? And another way is that they're not separate things and that they're, they're an attempt to explain how can there be mind only and yet seem like there's all this other stuff. And what are the categories, broadly speaking, of those other of that other stuff? So something to mull over, to ponder over for many years, basically. <laughs> and uh, confuse yourself about, and then gradually clarify, go back and forth with. But. Uh, so next next week we'll confuse ourselves a little more. We'll we'll talk about the eight levels of consciousness that seem to dependently arise from the Ali Vishnana, and uh, um, then the, the different categories of Chittamatras are really cool. So you're saying that the pure dependent nature continues even when you're in the so-called perfected. You know, enlightened world. There's still the depend the like the Buddha fields. Is that still, you know, the the dependent nature doesn't completely go away. Right. It turns into the Buddha fields. Hmm. <laughs> well, I guess I mean in terms of the scheme when you were talking about the idea that they're they're separate or not separate. In the view that they're separate things, it seems like the when you get to the third category, the perfected, the the other ones are are gone, right? Oh, that, that's a good point. So, um, <laughs> sorry. When you when you 
well, you said when you get to the third category. I think you mean when you like experience enlightenment through the revulsion of the Aliyah Vijnana. Yes, yes. And then the first type of phenomena, imputed phenomena, disappears. You no longer have any imputations. You no longer have concepts. You might use terms that indicate concepts in order to communicate with other beings and sort of experience their understanding of concepts in order to communicate with them about like what time is lunch and things like that. But you wouldn't actually have any investment in the level of imputation. And then your dependent phenomena would be Buddha fields. You would you would experience your surroundings as if a Buddha field, as being a, the Buddha field, a Buddha field. Depending upon your prior aspirations and vows for what type of Buddha field you want. So you better start thinking about what type of Buddha field you want. <laughs> it's never too early to start. You know, aspirations matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want a Buddha field where you'll enlighten people with talking? or with smells, or with sounds, or with movies, or, you know, there's an infinite variety of ways that you can have a Buddha field. So, I don't know, it's all complete. That's our homework, that's our homework, right? Homework, yeah, it's, it's all relatively in, inconceivable. <laughs> But theoretically, it's an you know it's a helpful way to view your mind. That there's sort of like there's there's the stuff of the mind that can morph in any way, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways. The stuff of the mind can morph, and everything that we think ex exists is a morphing of our mind. And ultimately, all of that mind stuff is completely empty and has no real division subject object start end finish goal any of that and all of the things that we think are happening are just mere imputations mere uh, imaginary uh, projections so you know it's it's very very much just a skillful means a way of like working with your mind On that note, let us uh, conclude with uh, dedication of mirrors. This merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory thank you good night nice to see you good night, good night.